0: go ahead and open up your Bible to the book of Revelation. We're going to continue our seri- series through the book of Revelation today in chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, looking at the church of Sardis in the first six verses. If uh, uh, if you're new with us, we've been studying this book of Revelation uh, for a number of weeks now, and uh, we're looking at chapters 2 and 3 and each church that's listed here in Revelation 2 and 3. My name's Cody. I'm the pastor here at Redemption. It's my honor, my privilege, to serve you in the scriptures. I love being able to take time to open God's word together, to look at what he has to say to us. And the way that we do it here at Redemption is we just go through books of the Bible. We open the Bible, we read through sections, and then we explain it. It should be very clear to you that what I'm saying is in the Bible. And to that end, if you don't have a Bible, um, then you can uh, grab one that's in the pew in front of you. Uh, And if you actually need a Bible, if you don't have one, then feel free to take that one as our gift to you. Here's our contract. If if you take it, you read it, okay? That's the only thing that I'm going to ask you to do. Uh, but that, that it's a good Bible. It's got the words of Jesus in red. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a really great one. So you can borrow that one uh, if you just need to borrow one, or you can take it. Or you can open up your smartphone or tablet to the YouVersion event, um, the YouVersion Bible app, and it'll go to the events, and you can follow along there as well. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now, like many people, my parents got a divorce when I was really young. I was two, three years old, somewhere around there, when my parents got divorced, and for the most part, my father wasn't a part of my life. He sort of popped in and out here and there throughout my life, and I remember there were actually a couple of summers where my sister and I I have one sister, she's two years younger than me, uh, we would uh, go and spend some time with my father. He wanted to, you know, take us for a couple of weeks or something like a week, maybe two weeks over the summertime, so we did that for a couple of years, Um, and uh, I remember one particular summer, he uh, was living on a ranch, and so he was taking care of this guy's ranch, and he, you know, like like a cowboy, like a real cowboy, not just one that wears a cowboy hat, but like actually rides and takes care of horses and puts shoes on them and all those things, right? So uh, so we'd spend time there, and you know, I got to do a bunch of uh, cowboy chores, which suck, by the way, I don't know if you've ever done that, but they're terrible. Uh, so, but one of them was super cool because they had chickens, and when you get too many chickens, you know what you do? You butcher them, right? That's what, that's what you do. And then you eat them, right? And so I got to do what I think is every boy's dream. I got to wield the hatchet in chopping off the chicken heads. It was the absolute coolest thing ever. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but it was, it was amazing. And if you, have, if you have a 10-year-old boy, then don't deprive him of chicken head chopping. All right, so um, there's a saying, running around like a chicken with your head cut off. And I know exactly what that means. Because when you chop that chicken head, man, it, there is more life and action in that moment than there was just a few seconds before. It goes absolutely wild. And if you put it down, it will run around and flop all over. It is crazy to see this taking place. What's going on? There's this, there's this thing that's happening. The chicken is very active, but very not alive right? It's, it's a lot of activity, but not any life. It's absolutely dead. And this phenomenon with chickens is not only in the animal kingdom, but it's also possible spiritually as well with people that we can have a lot of activity, but not have life. And it's especially dangerous within the church, that within the church, it's quite possible for us to look alive, but actually be dead. And so that's what we're looking at today in Revelation 3, 1 through 6. Our big idea is this. The appearance of life is not necessarily the presence of life. It can look alive, but it can actually be dead. So let's read Revelation 3, 1 through 6 together, and then we'll go back through and break it down. Revelation 3, 1 says this. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write these things, says he who has The seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received um, and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Verse four, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, uh, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the opportunity to look at it, to open it. God, to study it and to see what it is that you have to say. We recognize that this isn't just some uh, old book written by some old dead guys, but that this is actually living and powerful and active as Hebrews chapter 4 talks about. And God, we expect that you would use your word to penetrate us. Lord, would you open our hearts? Would you show us who we are. God, would you uh, penetrate deep into who we are that we might be transformed by your presence and by your word, by your strength and by your power. God, that we would be a people made in your image. So do that work among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we look at Revelation 3 1 through 6, we're going to break it down into three parts today. Verse 1 is a vision from Jesus, verses 1 through 3 is a correction from Jesus, and then 4 through 6 is a promise from Jesus. Now, like I said before, Revelation chapter 2 and 3 is actually centered around or structured around seven individualized letters that Jesus writes to the angel. We saw that there in verse 1, the angel of the church. The word angel means messenger, and we've identified that as the pastor of each of these churches. It could be an angel, but it's most likely the pastor, and that pastor represents a particular church. And this is uh, where we find ourselves in chapters 2 and 3. It's the second part of the outline of Revelation that we're given by Jesus himself. He gives us a divine outline in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, where he says, Write the things which you have seen. That's chapter 1. And then he says, uh, And the things which are. That's chapters 2 and 3. That's the time of John's living and these churches. And then he says, And the things which will take place, after this, and that starts in chapter four, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, and we'll see that as we move forward. All right, so now all of these churches, uh, these letters basically follow a similar structure, but maybe you noticed when I gave you our outline that one of those pieces is missing today. That, that typically Jesus gives the church not only a vision of himself, but he, he gives them an encouragement and a correction. There's an encouragement missing from this church, kind of a, a, an interesting thing that's taking place with Sardis. Let's just jump into it. Uh, chapter uh, 6, or excuse me, chapter 3, verse 1, and this letter written to the church in Sardis. It says this, chapter 3, verse 1, and to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, so let's stop right there. This word Sardis, this city Sardis, it was a great and wealthy city in Asia Minor. Uh, if you remember, we looked at that idea in chapter 1 that he says to the churches in Asia. It's not Asia that you think about. It's not China. It's not Japan. It's not Korea. Uh, it's actually Turkey. Asia Minor is what we would call today Turkey, the modern uh, country of Turkey, and in this area, there's a an ancient city called Sardis, which was the capital city of the kingdom of Lydia. Now, Sardis was positioned really uniquely in that five major roads intersected at the city of Sardis. It was like all roads lead to there. That's a, that's what's going on there. That it's a, a major um, hub in the area, and so by that, lots of trade would flow through Sardis, making the city very wealthy. Very, very wealthy. Actually, um, one of the the people in Sardis, he was one of the leaders in Sardis, was known as the wealthiest man in the world uh, at the time. So very, very wealthy there. Uh, they actually happened to have a, a river that ran through the city, and it was a gold-producing river. So it wasn't that they actually had to work hard in order to get money. They just sort of had gold floating down the river, and they just picked it up, and they got... They got wealthy that way. So it wasn't that they were really good hard workers. They just kind of got lucky with where they lived. Uh, they, actually, in this place, coins were minted for the first time here. And the, and the idea of money that we have, the modern idea of money, it comes from Sardis, that they actually minted coins there uh, in, in the way that we know money today. Uh, they were also known for manufacturing garments. They, they, they produced clothing. It's one of the big things that they did there. And so Jesus, to this city, he reveals himself the same way that he does in the previous four letters that we've looked to by pointing back to the vision we saw of him in chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. Look what he says there in uh, verse 1. He says, These things, says he, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So Jesus points to himself and he shows this vision, but it's not just the vision of uh, 1, 12 through 16. He also adds part of the description from earlier on in chapter 1 in verse 4. Here's what it says in Revelation 1, 4 through 5. Uh, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So here we have this introduction in chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. And if you missed this, then you can check it out online and uh, and look at that first study together. But we looked at this as a Trinitarian verse set of verses here. That we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit all present within these couple of verses and represented here. We noted that the word seven spirits is actually referring to the Holy Spirit. And it's a reference from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. That that's what the seven spirits is. So when Jesus says that again here in chapter 3, he's saying that that he's the one who has... The seven spirits. He's the one who is who has the Holy Spirit, and then also the seven stars there in, in uh, verse one is the idea of the pastors of the churches, and we saw that in chapter one, verse twenty, that Jesus tells us that that's what it is. Now, what's the significance of this? Well, the number seven represents completeness or perfection. So when he says, I have the seven spirits, it's not like the Holy Spirit is weird and has like seven personalities or seven parts to him or there's seven individual spirits that make up the Holy Spirit. Not at all. The idea is that it's the complete fullness of the Holy Spirit. The idea is also when he says seven stars, it's not that he only picks seven pastors and he says, I like those ones. It's that he, he has all of them. All of the Christian pastors belong to him. And those pastors are representatives of churches, right? There's no such thing really as a pastor without a, a church. It's kind of the point, you know, the, the pastor cares for the God's people. And so that's a church that's represented. And so what Jesus is saying is that he has everything. It's It's pointing to his complete authority, both in the Godhead as being God and part of the Trinity, but also he has complete authority over his churches now it's it's important for us to grasp this that the vision of Jesus in each church as we go through the vision that Jesus gives each church applies to what he has to say to them that the vision is never just random or isolated it's not like Jesus just decided I'm just gonna you know roll the dice and say to you guys I'm gonna say this about me no it's actually very intimately connected to what else he has to say Well, Jesus moves from from a vision to a correction, and that's also in verse 1 at the end there. Notice Jesus says this, I know your works, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you are dead. You see, Jesus knows, and this is repeated in each and every church. He says, I know about you. I know who you are. None of the churches escape his eye. None of them fly under the radar of his awareness. He knows about each church, and he knows not just about those churches then. He knows about our church now. He knows about us today. He sees me. He sees you. He sees all of us in this room. You see, your life is on full and clear display before the Lord. That there's nothing hidden. There's nothing that he doesn't know. There's nothing that he doesn't understand. And here's what's the crazy part. He knows everything about you, and he still wants a relationship with you. Isn't that mind-blowing? Right? Like, if you knew everything about me, you probably wouldn't want to be my friend. You'd be like, well, he's kind of a jerk. You know, I don't really like that about him or whatever. But, But the truth is that Jesus knows everything about me and yet still wants relationship with me. He still wants to pursue me. What an amazing thing. Now, typically, at this point, Jesus would give some sort of commendation. I know your works. And then he would say some good stuff to the church. But here uh, we see what he has to say. And at first glance, it seems like he's giving them a commendation. Notice what he says there. I know your works, that you have a name, that you're alive. This church has a great reputation. Everybody who knows about this church is like, that church is awesome. All the people in the church love the church. All the people in the community love the church. It's the best church ever. And if we were to just kind of think about that, think about that for our church, wouldn't that be a goal that we would have for our church, that everybody thinks our church is great? That seems like a really good goal, that everyone should love the church and should have a great reputation. Uh, both everyone and inside says the church is amazing and that, that church is rocking. That work church is alive. If everyone thought of our church was awesome, we would estimate that we were really healthy and really successful. But, but Jesus has a very different opinion about this church. There's a way that they see themselves and there's a way that Jesus sees them. And it's not the same. It's, it's very different. Notice there he says, I know your works. So you have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. That's a solemn thing for Jesus to say. That's a really weighty and heavy thing to hear from Jesus. You see, it's easy for us to mistakenly measure life and success the way that Jesus doesn't. And that's exactly what they were doing. They thought they were alive. They thought that they were successful. They thought their church was amazing by the way that they were measuring it. And Jesus looked at the same things and he said, it's not amazing. It's actually, it's actually dead. Maybe you would say, look at how full the parking lot is, or or, look at how many people attend, or look how big the building is, or look how many uh, professions of faith they have, and look how many ministries they have, and look how big their budget is. And you look at all those things, you go, man, that church is alive. That church is rocking. That church is going crazy. Now, these things aren't necessarily bad things, but they can all be present, and the church can be completely dead. All of that stuff can be there. All of it can be in place and yet be dead. Warren Wiersbe says it like this. The unsaved in Sardis saw the church as a respectable group of people who were neither dangerous nor desirable. They were decent people with a dying witness and a decaying ministry. What a crazy concept. That they were just decent people that they weren't dangerous to them, that it wasn't like the church was going to somehow change culture or cause people to abandon their idolatry and their sinfulness. They weren't desirable. It wasn't like, man, I've got to have what they have. They were just kind of there. And I was like, yeah, those are nice people. Yeah, they're, they're good, you know, if, if you need something, you can go ask them and they'll, they'll take care of you. You see, Sardis didn't look decaying, it looked alive. It wasn't like, you know, you drive by and you're like, man, what's happening in that place? Or it doesn't seem like anything's going on over there. Or, you know, the congregation is whittling down and it's just kind of getting smaller and smaller and whatever. It wasn't like that. It wasn't a decaying church. It looked rocking. It looked alive. It looked like everything was going really, really well. And yet, it was disconnected from the Holy Spirit. Remember the seven spirits? Jesus says he's the one who has the seven spirits. And because the church wasn't connected to the Holy Spirit, they had no life. You see, he's the supply of real power. He's the supply of real life. Jesus is the one who has both the Spirit and the church. He's the authority. Here's how Ephesians says it in chapter uh, 4, verses 15 and 16. Jesus, uh, it says this, uh, "'Instead, we will speak the truth in love, "'growing in every way more and more like Christ, "'who is the head of his body, the church.'" He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. You see, when a body or a church, that's a a symbolic concept for a church, when a church is disconnected from its head, just like the chickens, it's dead. Even though there can be life and lots of activity and seemingly life going on, it seems like a lot's happening. But if it's disconnected from the head, it's not actually alive. And Jesus is the head of the church. He's the one from whom all of the direction comes. He's the one from whom all the life flows. And if we're disconnected from Jesus as the head, then there's no way we can have his spirit living within us. Even if there's lots of movement, even if there's lots of ministry, even if there's lots of what appears to be life. Now this is true corporately for a church, but it's also true individually. We can be like this individually as well. That we can just go through the religious motions. And, and, but, but the truth is that going through the religious motions doesn't prove life uh, any more than anything else does. It's, it's not that we're tricking Jesus. We're not pulling the wool over his eyes and just saying, you know what? I did the things I'm supposed to do. I, I prayed the prayer. I read some verses. You know, I let somebody cut me off in traffic. Check. I'm good. You know, it's it's not that we just do these things in order to, to somehow fly under the radar. No, there's no real value in such things if it's not submitted to Jesus. It's actually got to be submitted to Jesus. To him. You see, it's interesting that in this church, the way that Jesus says that it's dead, there's no mention of any kind of um, difficulty that they go through or persecution. Just like the city just got wealthy by accident, just by living where where they lived, so too the people were just kind of enjoying this uh, goodness to them or this uh, seeming life just Kind of by accident. There's no difficulty they're going through. There's no persecution going through as the cause of their deadness. The church had just drifted. David Guzik says, "...being dead, the church in Sardis presented no significant threat to Satan's domain." Friends, I'll just lay it on the line. The church in Sardis wasn't worth attacking. It It was a perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. It wasn't scandalous wickedness that doomed the church at Sardis. It was a decent death. They had a form of godliness, but without the power of it. They were just good people, and they were well-liked by all. You see, we might look at this as a win for the church, that they're just good people and well-liked by all, but Jesus actually sees it as a problem. He doesn't, he doesn't think that when everybody likes you, that that's a good thing. Did you know that? It's kind of weird because it's not the way that you, you may think of Jesus, or the way that everyone tells you it should be. That Christians are just supposed to be nice people that everybody likes. I mean, if if you're if you're not somebody that everybody likes, then you're not being a very good Christian. But here's what Jesus says in Luke chapter six, verse twenty-six. He says, "Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets." That's a that's a different idea, isn't it? Jesus says when everybody says good things about you, it's not a good thing. Now listen, why they're saying stuff about you that's, not, that's negative matters a lot. If they're just saying mean things about you, you're not being persecuted if you're just a jerk or you're just you know not kind or whatever. Uh, you deserve that. It's not persecution for being a Christian. But if you're being like Jesus and it's offensive to them and they don't like you for it, that's something that Jesus says is honorable before him. You see, the truth of the gospel is offensive. Here's the truth of the gospel. You are a wicked, depraved sinner on your way to hell. That's, that's offensive. I don't know if you've said that to somebody lately. <laughs> That's not really written in the, you know, how to win friends and influence people book, right? That's just not a good way to make buddies with you. Hey, yeah, I just wanted to come over to my neighbor's house and say, you're a wicked sinner on your way to hell, right? Like that's just not going to be something that you say to people to make them like you. It's offensive. You're not okay. You, you should not pursue your heart. Your desires aren't right? The things that you want are off. They're skewed. They're other than. They are running away from the things of God. That's a big problem. But here's the other part of the gospel. But God loved you so much that he willingly took your place to pay for your sin. Jesus rescued you by his blood. That's the amazing thing of the cross. Of the gospel. You see, you won't see any need in the death of Jesus for you if you don't see yourself as condemned. It's when you understand that I am condemned because of my sinfulness, then you'll see the amazing grace and, and goodness and rescuing power of Jesus. But, but you've got to see yourself as deserving of death in order to, to understand Jesus and the gospel. You see, this church is dead, but Jesus doesn't want it to be that way. He wants this church to be alive. And and so Jesus has, uh, not only does he want the church to be alive, but turns out he specializes in resurrection power, right? He can raise himself from the dead. We saw how he raised other people from the dead in the gospels. And so he has this resurrection power. Jesus is not interested in making good people better. That's not what he wants. He doesn't want this good quote-unquote church to just get a little bit better he looks at them and says you're dead and you need to be made alive right so he has this uh this plan that he has Ephesians chapter two verse one it, it says this and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins it's that when you understand that you are completely dead without Jesus then you'll understand that he's the one who can give you life he makes you alive. Now, like a good doctor, Jesus has a plan to take this dead church and breathe life back into it. You know, the, the the a doctor should kind of have a plan for you if you come in and you have sickness or you're you know you've got this uh, some sort of disease that's taking place and it's gonna it's killing you. The, a doctor should have a plan for you of how we're gonna deal with this thing. And Jesus, like the the uh, the the great physician, a good doctor, he's got a plan. And he's like, here's what we're gonna do. He, he has a, a five prescriptions for the church's resurrection. Notice there in verse two, Jesus says this. Be watchful. That's number one. The first thing he says be watchful. Now, if you have a New American Standard Bible or if you have an English Standard uh, version of the Bible, then be watchful is translated as wake up. That's what it says in, in there. So, be watchful is the same idea as wake up, it's the idea of pay attention. Come back to your senses and think about some things that are taking place here. The church had been lulled to sleep by a false sense of security and a false sense of success. They thought that they were doing great. They thought everything was going well. And so they just kind of fell asleep. And Jesus says, hey, wake up. It's time for you to stop going in the way that you're going and to realize that's leading you over a cliff. Your life is taking you the wrong way. Romans 13, 11 through 12 says this, This is all the more urgent, for you know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living. But Paul has the same kind of an exhortation to the church in Rome to say, Cast off the dirty deeds and put on Christ and his righteousness and stand in him. So be watchful. Wake up. The second thing Jesus says there in verse 2 is, And strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. So Jesus says, be watchful. Secondly, strengthen what remains. You see their death, even though they're dead, it's not yet complete. It's like they're, they're dead, but there's still a little pulse there or something like that is going on. There's an opportunity for life to come back in. You see the works that began in the spirit had drifted into self-centeredness, into selfishness. Notice that Jesus says there, he says, strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. They're, they're, they're these good things that were set in place toward the beginning, and they were set there as the right thing, but now you've drifted away from the purpose of them, and so they're dying, they're, they're decaying, they're going away. And he says, for I've not found your works perfect before God. The stuff you're doing, you're doing it as though it's the right religious motions, but it's missing something. It's, it's missing what's taking place. They have lost The why behind what they were doing. Their view of themselves and Jesus' view of them were very, very different. Here's an example. It's like this. It's like when we are singing to the Lord. We have these worship songs that are written. The songs can be theologically sound. They can have all the right things said about God in them. Uh, They can be skillfully played and skillfully sung. Everybody can sing together and everybody join in. And it can still not be worship all that can be true. You can sing the right theology. You can do it skillfully in in a great musical way, and it cannot be worship. Why? Because the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. It's all about what's happening within your heart. It's not just going through the motions and saying the right words. It's all about what's happening within you as you're singing those things. And so this church had drifted in many ways away from the heart of the matter. Number three, not only be watchful, strengthen what remains, but remember. Verse three says this, remember therefore how you have received and heard. You see, Jesus says, remember or think back. Think back to the way that it was. And specifically, he says, uh, remember how you have received and heard. He's pointing them back to the word of God. He's pointing them back to the gospel message, back to the, the things that God says in his word that leads us from ourselves to him. He says, essentially, you've abandoned the scriptures. You've abandoned God's word. You're, you say nice things to each other, maybe even scripturally true things to each other, but you've left the authority of the Bible. And once you've done that, now you've sentenced yourself to death, that they've cut themselves off from the only thing that could grow them and mature them and, and lead them in uh, the things of the Lord. Scripture had lost its place of prominence among the people. You see, knowing God's word is the key to life, and godliness. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It's that life and godliness is bound up in knowing the Lord and his word. Number four, we have be watchful, strengthen what remains, remember, and then four, hold fast. Verse 3, he says this, hold fast. And that's all it says, hold fast. So the idea here is to reprioritize what Jesus says as the most important. He says, think about what the things I've told you right? Remember what you received and, and what you have read uh, and heard, and hold fast to that. That that's what you need to go back to. Not only remember it, but hold fast to it. That what Jesus says is the most important. It has the highest priority. That he sets my values. He sets my priorities. That I'm going to cling to what is good. Romans chapter 12 verse 9. I'm going I'm to actually put my hands out to grasp What Jesus says is good and hold on to it with all that I have. It's not a passive thing that happens to me, but a passionate pursuit that I give myself to the Lord with all that I am. That if Jesus has given everything for me, if Jesus was willing to go to my cross and die my death and bleed for my salvation, what else can I do but live for him? What other right thing is there for me to do except cling to him with all that I have? And so Jesus says, hold fast. And finally, fifthly, he says there in verse 3, and repent. Repent. We've, we've identified repent a number of times throughout our series. As Jesus says this over and over again to the churches, calling them to repentance. And as Jesus says to repent, what he's saying is, stop going the way you're going away from me. And turn around and come back to me. That's what the idea of repentance is. is to acknowledge that your way is wrong and that Jesus' way is right. And I'm going to stop going my way and I'm going to start going his way. It's making the active choice to let go of my things and my ideas in order to hold on to Jesus. That I'm going to believe he is right and I'm going to change. I'm not going to try to get him to change to say that I'm right. I'm going to say he's right and I need to change in order to be more like him. I think these, the ideas of hold fast and repent go together in a really powerful way. Here's why. If my hands are full of me, then I can't hold on to Jesus. I've got to be willing to let go of myself, let go of my ways, let go of my things in order to be able to hold on to Jesus. If, you're, if your life is so full of you, there's no room for you to hold on to the things of the Lord. So maybe God right now in this moment is even provoking you and pointing out to you that there's something in your life that you are holding on to. Something that you won't let go of. Hebrews tells us that it can be a sinful thing. Something that is is absolutely clearly stated by Scripture is wrong, but it also could be something that's called a weight in Hebrews 12. Something that's not necessarily sinful, it's just in the way. It's time to get rid of those things, to shed those things in order to hold on to Jesus. Now notice what he says there in verse 3. Therefore, if you will not watch, if you don't do what I'm telling you, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. This idea of as a thief, it's a foreshadowing of the idea of the rapture, which we'll get more into in chapter 4, verse 1. So we're going to look at this in depth in chapter 4. But he's foreshadowing the idea that Jesus is going to come the same way that a thief comes, right? Anybody ever have a thief announce to you that they're going to steal from you and when they're going to come? No, because that's dumb, right? They're not going to do that because you're going to be ready or you're going to have the cops there or whatever. That's just not what they do. They wait for the opportunity to strike when you least expect it. That's how it works. They use some sort, of, some sort of trickery. They use some sort of distraction. They wait until you're not even there. Whatever it happens to be, that's how thieves work. And Jesus says the same way that a thief comes when you're not expecting it, I'm going to come. And if I'm going to come and you're not ready, you're going to miss it. That's what Jesus is warning them about. That he's he wants them to be expecting his return, not come, uh, not, not for him to come when they are not expecting it. This goes back to Matthew chapter four, excuse me, twenty-four, verses forty through forty-four. You can write that down and uh, look it up later if you want to. Matthew twenty-four. Forty through forty-four. Jesus here talking about his return says that there are some people. There'll be you know two people walking in a field. One of them's taken, the other one's left. There'll be two people laying in a bed. One of them's taken, the other one's left. That, that Jesus says that he when he comes like a thief. This is the way that it's going to be. And he's warning this church, you're not going to come. Which which is implying they're not saved. They're not Christians. They're doing all the right things. They're going through the right motions. Everyone around them says, man, those are great Christian people. But Jesus looks at them and says, you don't even know me. You have no relationship with me whatsoever. Not only only is this idea of a thief pointing to the, uh, the rapture of the church, but it's also pointing back to the history of this city. This city um, uh, Sardis was actually built on uh, I think it's called an acropolis whatever it's a, it's a large rock outcropping that had um, cliffs on every side, so sheer that it 's impossible to to scale and climb. there's only one way into the city where the the land gradually led into the the entrance of the city so this was the perfect city to defend. You only had to defend from one side. It's not like you're in a field and everyone can come from surrounding you. There's only one way to get in. And the, the city was so strong and so easily defensible that the people grew uh, very, um, just lackadaisical. They grew lazy in their, their, uh, their idea, of their security. And two times in their history, the city was overtaken because the, the watch wasn't watching. They just fell asleep. They just weren't watching. And so Jesus is saying, listen, I'm going to come like a thief in the night, the same way that your own city has been overtaken because they weren't watching. If you're not watching, you're going to be overtaken and you're not going to participate in it. You see, many had a false sense of spiritual security when destruction was really in their future. Thirdly and finally, not only a vision from Jesus, a correction from Jesus, uh, but also a promise from Jesus Verses four through six. Look at verse four. It says this. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now, the closest that Sardis gets to any kind of compliment from Jesus is that there's a few people who stand out to Jesus as true believers and actually his followers. That even among this church that has so many false converts and people just going through their religious motions, that Jesus says there's actually a couple of people there who are, who are saved. A, a couple of true believers. They are known as those who have not defiled their garments. Remember we talked about how Sardis was a city known for uh, making clothing? Well, in this, uh, basically what Jesus is saying is that as these people are walking through life, as they're going through life, true believers are going to go through life, not defiling their garments, not walking in the filthy things of life. Why? Because when you follow Jesus, he leads you away from that stuff. Not because they're super awesome people who aren't messing up their lives, but because Jesus is leading them and following Jesus makes everything better. That's what he's saying. Their garments aren't defiled. They they haven't haven't, uh, made their their clothes filthy uh, because they're walking in the purity and holiness that Jesus provides. You see, for a city that was known for garment manufacturing, this would be especially impactful They would take pride in their high quality of clothing and they would not want to defile their clothes or dirty themselves. Now notice, not only does Jesus say that, but he also says this idea of white clothes uh, or white garment. He also repeats it in verse 5. He says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. See, Jesus here repeats the idea of a white garment. Now, this white garment is something that you don't earn, you don't make yourself, you don't create. It's a gift given by Jesus. The idea of a white garment here is that it represents being made clean and it also represents holiness. Now, Jesus says, you, life has made you filthy and I'm going to clean you up. I'm going to take that filthiness off of you and I'm going to make you clean by giving you this white garment. But also not just cleanse, being cleansed, but also having holiness. 1 John chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 say this, If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Do you see that there what Jesus says? That if you'll confess your sin to him, the word confess means to agree with. That if you'll agree with Jesus on what's right and wrong, and you'll say what you say is right, and I confess that my heart is contrary to you, and I need you to help me, then Jesus says he'll do two things. He will cleanse your heart. He will clean you in a way that no shower ever could. He will clean you deep within you so that those things that have stained your soul no longer have a hold on you. He removes them completely. But he also says that he'll forgive you. Not not just not just wiping it away, but he says that he'll extend this forgiveness, which is the basis of relationship. That, that the point of sin, the problem of sin, is that it ruins our relationship with God. And so when Jesus says, I'll extend forgiveness to you, that's what makes it all better. That's what makes it all right. That's what Jesus does to bring the relationship back together. And his only requirements, God's only requirements are that you believe and that you confess. That's what he says. That confession, like I said, is to agree with God. It implies repentance. And that if it's wrong, then you abandon it. And when you do this, Jesus moves near to forgive you, to cleanse you. And these are the two greatest needs that you cannot give yourself. Your two greatest needs are to be forgiven and to be cleansed. More than you need food, more than you need water, more than you need air, more than you need sleep, more than you need a place to live, you need forgiveness from God... And you need your soul to be cleansed. And if you've experienced that, then you absolutely know that's true. But those who maybe have not, I would encourage you to take heed to these things. That the Lord is revealing them to you. You see, this isn't just a one-time thing, though, that you do this sometime in the past. This is a place where Christians live, that, that, that we need to be continually returning to this place of, Lord, I've, uh, I made my garments filthy again. I I, I've, I walked in the stuff I shouldn't have walked in. I, I was participating in things I shouldn't have participated in. And you know what Jesus does? He says, well, you ruined it. Sorry, that was your one uh, white garment. No. He cleanses you again. He forgives you again. He draws you in again. Why? Because that's how great his love is. So we just need to come to him. David Guzik says this, the difference between the majority with imperfect works though they had a good reputation. And the few names who really pleased God was purity and the closeness with Jesus that is related to purity. You see, the whole thing is that when you're close to Jesus, he makes you pure. That's the whole thing. That there's some people going through the motions of religious stuff and they didn't actually know Jesus, they weren't close to him at all, but there were others who were actually close to Jesus. Some looked pure, some were actually pure. Some had the form of godliness, others had the actual power of godliness living within them. Now notice there it says something uh, in verse 5, that Jesus says, I will not blot out his name from the book of life maybe that's freaking you out you're like is my name blotted out like what happened here all right so uh, let me let me walk through this really quickly with you this idea is not at all that you could somehow lose your salvation that's not at all what this is saying many people have approached this and said oh no my name has been written in the book of life and then i did something i did the unpardonable sin and now my name's blotted out of the book it's not at all what's taking place here. It's it's not that you could lose your salvation any more than you could be unborn or that, you know, my kids could somehow not be my kids one day. Uh, you know, oh, you know what? You spilled the milk. That's it. You're out of the house. Go live in the backyard. You're not my kid anymore, right? Like there's no way for my kids to ever do anything to cease to be my children. Does that make sense? I don't care what it is. I don't care how bad it goes. I don't care what's going on. My attitude is always going to be to move toward them, to help them, to clean them up, and to make it better. The only thing that's going to make it hard is if they're little jerks and they just don't want my help, right? That's that's what's going to make it hard. But the truth of the matter is that's the the heart of a father. That's the way that a father thinks about his kids. You see, the implication here, here's something that's really cool. The implication is that everybody's name is written in the book of life. That when you are conceived, your name goes in God's book. He writes your name in there. It's his registry of all the people who have ever lived. And that you uh, have to then get your name blotted out that God pre-writes you into his registry in heaven. That's how much he wants you. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he cares about you is that he writes you in and he wants you to come with him. You see, God has not sent a single person to hell. Not a single person has ever gone to hell because God has sent them there. Every single person who ends up in hell has to step over the bloodied body of Jesus and plunge themselves into the eternal lake of fire. That's the only way it works. That's the only way it works because he makes himself known and he reveals himself. You see, John 3.16 says this, For this is how God loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting, eternal life. Jesus has done everything for for all of us. See, God loved you so much that he wrote your name in his book of life. He sent Jesus to die in your place. He documented that truth in his word. And then he sent me to tell you about it right now, to tell you about it. That's how much God loves you. That's how much he pursues you. And his only requirements are that you believe what he said and you confess it. You actually say, God, you're right. You're true. Verse 6 He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You see, Jesus ends his letter here the way that he does uh, with his last four, uh, with this final phrase, and what he's doing is he's extending this letter far beyond this city in this time. He's actually giving an invitation to anyone willing to listen to what he has to say. So what about you? What about me? What about us right now? Are you trying to make up for the deadness you feel inside with activity that seems like it's good works? Is there a disconnect from you and the Lord? Is there a deadness within you? And and you're wondering, maybe if I just, if I give enough money, if I do enough good things, if I adopt enough, you know, rescue dogs, if I uh, do, you know, do, walk some old lady across the street or something, like if I do enough good things, I'll I'll somehow weigh it out to where my good outweighs my bad and then God will like me. Uh, That's just not how it works. The stack of sinfulness against you is so big and so heavy and so massive, you will never tip the scales. I don't care if you spend the rest of your life trying to do only good things, you will, you will not outweigh that balance. The only thing that shifts the balance is the blood of Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus. It's coming to him. Are, are you uncertain at all that your name is written in his book of life? Is there something within you that says, I, gosh, I don't know if I'm there or I'm not. Well, it's time to stop hoping that everything's just going to work out in the end and start hoping in the certain reality of Jesus's forgiveness. If you've been going through the religious motions or pushing Jesus away and you know that you need to come to him or come back to him, then I want to encourage you to pray this prayer with me. It's very simple. And here's the thing. The only thing that matters is that you pray it from your heart. So pray this prayer to the Lord, something like this. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for my sin. I believe you rose from the dead. Please forgive me and cleanse me. Make me yours and help me to follow you. In your name I pray, amen. And if you prayed that prayer or something like that prayer, and I want to encourage you that Lord, the Lord hears your prayer. He hears your heart and he welcomes you into his family as his child. But don't let it stop there. You need to talk to somebody about it. And so afterward, there's going to be people up here for prayer. I want to encourage you to come and talk to somebody about it and get prayer and get encouragement because we need that. We need to be encouraged in the things of the Lord. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. God, we thank you for your love and the way that you pursue us. And we thank you that we can have the assurance that our names are written in your book of life, that you're going to give us a white garment, pure, spotless, and holy. Not because of anything we've done, but because, Jesus, of everything that you've done. So we pray that you would help us to to know you, to honor you, and to follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.